And one more thing, folks. This is Rico, by the way. And Brendan over here. It sure is. So one more thing. You're about to hear a rerun episode of the Dinner Party Download. Yeah, sorry about that. But if you find yourself in North Carolina this week, you can see an all-new episode and us live. That is correct. Yeah. Friday, July 25th at 3 o'clock p.m., we'll be in Chapel Hill at a club called The Nightlight. And as part of Merge Records' 25th anniversary, we'll be recording a show in person Featuring our guests, some of the most beloved names on the Merge roster. That's right, including Mac and Laura from Super Chunk and the legendary band Teenage Fan Club playing covers of their favorite party tunes. And a historical tale, a custom drink, and your etiquette questions answered. All that. Admission is free, so get in line early. That's the Nightlight in Chapel Hill, Friday, July 25th at 3 p.m. I'm getting excited just reading this promo. Imagine being there. (laughs) Hope you show up, everybody. And now, here's your icebreaker. All right, here's a joke my kids are fond of. What do you call an alligator in a vest? I don't know. An investigator. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. And from APM, American Public Media, this is the Dinner Party Download, the culture show that helps you win your dinner party. You just got a joke from filmmaker Lance Bangs that'll help break the ice. His latest documentary is about the quietly influential 90s band Slint. We'll speak with him and the band's drummer later. Plus, we talk to movie star Scarlett Johansson. Her new sci-fi film, Lucy, hits theaters next weekend. Also coming up, upright citizen Matt Walsh tells a tale of a holiday gone horribly, horribly wrong. We learn about the wedding chicken of Uzbekistan, and we assault Billy Eichner, a.k.a. Billy on the Street, with your questions. And if that stellar lineup sounds familiar, that's because this is an encore broadcast of an episode we first aired back in April. So cast your mind back to a time when fans of Brazilian soccer were just happier people. When, as at any dinner party, we started with small talk. All week long, you've been hearing these headlines. Gabriel Garcia Marquez, who put magical realism on the literary map, has died. Scientists said they found a planet they believe is the closest match for Earth so far. Michael Phelps is diving back into the competition. Now for a story you might not have heard. We are speaking with Richard Lawson. He is the film reviewer for VanityFair.com. Richard, what story are you going to be talking about this weekend? I'm going to be talking about the fact that science seems to have determined that we've arrived at peak beard. Hmm. Good. So science has been on the subway in Brooklyn. Basically, basically (laughs) you could observe it on the subway in Brooklyn. But in fact, this was um, Australian scientists who did an experiment where they had four groups of people and they showed them pictures of men in various stages of beardedness. And the groups that saw pictures of more beards found beards less attractive. So the rarer the beard was. The more attractive it became. Right. Hence this notion of peak beard which means, you know, if we're overly saturated with beardedness... So people are going to be attracted to people without beards. Exactly. Is that go oh. g- generally for the entire human race? Like, if you have something that's, like, a trait that's rarer, then it becomes more attractive? Yeah, it's like a Darwinian evolution thing. It's negative frequency-dependent sexual selection. Yeah. What? Yeah. Of course. Which basically means if there's too many of it, you don't like it. Oh. So, so basically, the, the, the long and short of this is that the beard trend could actually already be on its last legs because we, we've arrived at peak beard theoretically last year. That was sort of when people started declaring the beard over. <laughs> so Duck Dynasty um, is about to drop in the ratings is what you're saying. Yeah, well they, or unless they shave. Oh, <laughs> wonder what's yeah. under there. Oh God, God only knows. I'd be fascinated to find out. They're all ducks. <laughs> so Richard, no one knows this, but you, I'm looking at you now, you have a beard. Well, yeah, what I'm are you going to do with this knowledge? Yeah, I haven't used a, a razor in some years, so I got to get used 
used to it, buddy. Got to reteach myself. Call my dad. <laughs> Show me how it's done. All right, Richard Lawson, thanks so much for the small talk. Thank you. And now, time for a smooth cocktail. Once again, we tell you something that happened this week in history, then ask a bartender to capture its essence in the form of a cocktail. It's our slightly off-dry history lesson with booze. First, the history. 33 years ago this week, two minor league baseball teams, the Paul Tuckett Red Sox and the Rochester Red Wings, faced off at McCoy Stadium in Rhode Island. And it was one for the record books. Michelle Phillippe tells the tale. It was cold and windy at McCoy Stadium on April 17, 1981. Both teams prayed their game that night would go quickly. And it did, at first. After eight brisk innings, the Red Wings led by one run. But then, in the bottom of the ninth, Paw Sox player Wade Boggs hit a homer. The game went into extra innings. And a kind of nightmare began. Five extra innings went by, then ten, hour after hour, but neither team scored. Hits that looked like sure home runs got blown by the knifing wind back into the stadium for easy outs. Meanwhile, temperatures plunged. In the dugouts, players started fires to keep warm, using broken bats for tinder. Between the billowing smoke and the cold, pretty much everyone watching the game went home. At last, in the 21st inning, the Red Wings scored. But a few minutes later, Boggs kept the game alive by driving in another tying run. He later recalled, quote, I didn't know if the guys on my team wanted to hug me or slug me. Finally, at four in the morning, score still tied, the league's president suspended the game. The teams had played for eight hours and 32 innings the longest pro ball game ever. Just a dozen or so shivering Paw Sox fans remained in the stands. They each got a lifetime season pass. But the story isn't over. That summer, the teams met again to finish the suspended game. And since major league players were on strike, this minor league game became a national media event. Alas, it was not another epic battle. The Paw Sox won it in 18 minutes. So that was the history lesson. Now for a drink to go along with it, I am joined by Beth Smith. She is a bartender at Murphy's Law Irish Pub and Restaurant in Pawtucket, Rhode Island, the home of the Paw Sox, uh, where baseball's longest game took place. Beth. Hi. Beth Smith is your name. You're not in the Witness Protection Program. Yeah. <laughs> Not as of yet. <laughs> well, yeah, who knows? There's there's time. Um, first of all, have you ever had you heard of this baseball game before? Yes, that... I have. Our hotel next door is actually has been home to the Paw Sox for many, many years. Oh, wow. And the opposing teams. So they've hung out and, you know, we've discussed it. So you heard this interesting telling of the story. What drink did it inspire you to make? Well, we call this drink a record breaker because the guys <laughs> broke so many records that day. Not only the innings, but plays and on and on, you know. It's true. They also broke bats and burned them. Yes, they did. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So what's in the record breaker? We've got some Jim Beam to warm you up a little bit after a cold night like that. Makes sense. We've got some amaretto, some cherry puckers, and... Wait a second. What are cherry puckers? It's like a liqueur. Oh, okay. So it's, it's a cherry liqueur. Yes. 
And so, I'm sorry, I interrupted you. What, what else is in the drink? We've got some pineapple, orange juice, and a splash of grenadine because we oh. have to have it red to match our guys' colors. What is it about New England and their love of baseball? I mean, is it simply the team, the Boston Red Sox, that you adore, or is there something about the sport itself that appeals to the New England soul? Well, I think because we get so cold in the wintertime, it's so great to get out, sit, root on for your favorite team, you know, be outdoors and enjoy it. Very, like, quiet game, though. I mean, it... Listen, you don't know Red Sox fans then. We take our game very seriously. <laughs> Over the course of four hours, you know, you, the beer sets in, the sun sets in, people get a little drowsy by the end. Can you imagine eight? But that would be good for the concession stands, right? You'd probably sell a lot of drinks if people well, were. Well, from what I understand, they ran out of stuff at the concessions. They ran out of food and stuff, so. They may have resorted to cannibalism, kind of <laughs> like that. <laughs> They'll just throw you on the grill over there with the bats burning. <laughs> And fans of the Paul Sox should take note, Murphy's Law Pub will be selling the record breaker all weekend. Well, that's nice of them. It is. Of course, it being Murphy's Law, they'll probably run out by the time you get there. So, <laughs> Ain't that always the way. Luck of the Irish. But uh, people, should that occur, you can always head to our website. It's dinnerpartydownload.org. You'll find the recipe for the record breaker and all our custom cocktails there. eavesdrop. This is the part of the show in which we overhear a dinner party worthy tale. Here's one from comedian and TV star Matt Walsh, just in time for Easter Sunday. Hi, my name's Matt Walsh. I'm one of the founders of the Upright Citizens Brigade, and I'm currently on Veep on HBO, which is on Sunday evenings. Today, I'd like to share a story about my family's encounters with the Easter Bunny. I grew up in Chicago. I'm one of seven children, so our holidays were mass-produced or they were done on the cheap. So my father would tell us if we went to bed early, we might see the Easter Bunny. So we all ran upstairs in excitement of possibly catching a glimpse of the Easter Bunny. My dad would go in the garage, tape two hockey sticks together, and then he would put two tube socks, white tube socks, on the hockey sticks, and it looked like bunny ears, you know, little cute rabbit ears. And then he would open the garage door and take a ladder with him and go to the side of the house, prop the ladder against the house, and climb up to the second story window, which was our bedroom. And he would tap on the window with the hockey sticks. And we would hear the noise, and we'd go to the window and pull the curtains aside. And then he would just peek the socks up from down below, standing on a ladder really quick, and then pull them down. Then he would pop it up, back down, really quick glimpses. And, and that was it. It was like a 30-second show. And then he would quietly sneak down the ladder take the socks off the hockey sticks and then put everything back in the garage. As a child, I remember it being magical because we were up on the second floor, so I'm like, how is that Easter Bunny getting up so high? And also, it seemed like it was happy because it was a hopping little furry thing bouncing in front of your window, almost saying, like, go to bed, I'm going to bring you candy tomorrow. None of my friends had a Easter Bunny sighting before Easter, so it was very special. Like, I felt like a special kid. So this was a, a lo-fi tradition that I wanted to continue for my children. I did it one year, I have two boys, Emmett was the two-year-old, and I started telling them, I think the Easter Bunny's gonna come tonight, you guys better get ready. And I had recruited my brother Pat to play the puppeteer of the Easter Bunny. We're waiting, 
in the room and I'm like, I think he's coming. I think the Easter Bunny's coming. Are you guys nervous? And they're like, yeah, yeah. And I'm like, oh my God, get ready to have your mind blown. Here comes the Easter Bunny. Outside their window is a large bush that's very thick. So my brother couldn't get flush to the wall. So he had to come at the window perpendicular while staying low. And it was a very awkward position. So when the Easter Bunny finally appeared, he flew at the window and smacked it really hard and almost broke it and it made this huge bang. And instantly Emmett started freaking out. And then my brother Pat tried to give him another show of the Easter Bunny and he swung at the window again and he hit it kind of cockeyed. Emmett got more upset with each appearance of the Easter Bunny. I'm like, okay, Easter Bunny, that's enough. But my brother was outside and he couldn't hear me. So just imagine you're Emmett, my two-year-old. You're seeing the crest of an animal that's probably seven feet tall trying to climb in your window and get at you. Finally, after like three or four swipes at the window, my brother realized that, okay, it wasn't going over, and he kind of crawled away from the window. Emmett finally calmed down, but he was still full of adrenaline and his face was flush from crying, so my wife pulled out some of the normal soothing bedtime stories that we read the kids and the first one she pulled out was guess how much i love you and when she opened it up it is the story of a father rabbit telling his son how much he loves him and it conjured up the apparition that was at the window minutes ago the next morning when there were treats and marshmallow peeps and chocolate eggs in their easter baskets emmett was a little leery dad this is from the easter bunny I like the chocolate, but I don't really like the Easter Bunny. So it was kind of like when you work for an employer who you hate but pays you a lot of money. Like, I'm being gratified with material things, but ultimately, spiritually, I'm being damaged. <laughs> that was my happy Easter for Emmett. A touching holiday tale from Matt Walsh. He co-founded the improv comedy troupe Upright Citizens Brigade, and he co-stars on HBO's Veep. It airs Sunday nights. All right, folks, coming up, Scarlett Johansson settles the score with Robert Redford. And now I finally got to punch him in the face. They were up for the same role, I'm betting. Yeah, That and more when the Dinner Party download continues. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, Public Radio's Arts and Leisure section. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. Want to let you know this is an encore broadcast of an episode we first aired in April, but it's a great one. It really is a great one. Yes, later we will hear from comedian Billy Eichner and learn about 90s indie rock hero Slint. But first, it's time to meet our guest of honor. Yes, and this week it's movie star Scarlett Johansson. As a kid, she appeared in a bunch of films, including The Horse Whisperer, but her lead role in the Oscar-winning Lost in Translation really brought her to the world's attention. Since then, she's appeared in three Woody Allen films, including Matchpoint, and in one of the highest-grossing movies ever, The Avengers. Yeah. Her new film, Lucy, opens next weekend. But when we spoke in April, we focused on Under the Skin, an indie sci-fi film in which she plays an alien who preys on men. I started by welcoming her to our virtual dinner party. A virtual dinner party is it's calorie-free. It is calorie-free, but you probably don't have a lot of time for real dinner parties anyway. You're so busy these days. For real calories? <laughs> <laughs> Do I have time for dinner parties? I, I can't remember the last... No, I went to a dinner party not that long ago, actually. Help me out here. When you're at a dinner party or you're anywhere, how do you describe under the skin when people ask you about it? It's a difficult log line to sell um, <laughs> because, it, of course, you know, you start to talk about it and it sounds like a really bad Slayer film. 
you know, to me, this film, the appeal of the film was really about finding this character as she has this whole life. Mm-hmm. You see Laura, as she's called, go from being an it to being becoming a she, really, yeah. and experiencing everything through these alien eyes. And so everything is completely and totally new. And the hope is that the audience has the same experience as well. It occurred to me that in a way, being a celebrity is kind of alienating. You know, you're working (laughs) constantly. You go from one set to the next for safety reasons. Your private life is kind of circumscribed. And I wonder if you tapped into that experience at all to play this role. Hmm, I'm sort of unaware of my... As I've gotten older, I've I've realized that it's better for me to pretend to be blissfully unaware (laughs) of (laughs) um, my celebrity, in quotes, um, you know, than than when I was younger. I was much more self-conscious. It's sort of a shocking thing to be 17 or 18 and all of a sudden become extremely noticeable. You don't know how to handle it. You think, oh, God, what do I do with my boyfriend? And you know, am I going to be photographed all the time? And it's a strange adjustment to make. Um, And then you adjust as much as you can to that. You know, of course, it's it's, it can be a very alienating thing, particularly when people act like aliens. (laughs) Do you know, they kind of lose their sense of humanity. Um, You know, it's a normal thing to do, I guess you sort of lose yourself in the moment. And it's hard to relate to a person that you just can't even believe they're right in front of you. But I think as I've gotten older, I've become more comfortable, oddly, in my own skin, um, ironically, I guess. So I I don't think I had to really play into that as much. You mentioned you've been acting since you were a kid. You know, has how's your life been different than you imagined it would be? You know, you were in movies <laughs> early. You, I guess you saw that there was going to be a trajectory where you would probably make a living as an actor. Well, I'm still working, so that's different than I thought it was going to oh, be. Oh, you, you thought at this point you'd be a barista? <laughs> I, I don't know about being a barista, but, you know, I, I never had any idea what kind of a career I was going to have. I mean, I, you know, when I was really young, of course, I thought I was going to be Judy Garland. Um, <laughs> you know, that didn't happen. I didn't have the pipes, I guess. Not the same uh, pipes anyway. You have um, different pipes that have worked for you. <laughs> yes, that's true. My pipes work for me, but uh, it's a different set of pipes. That's that's, that's true. Right. While we're doing research for this interview, I saw that when you were a kid, when you were on your first performance on Broadway, I believe, in your bio said that you loved your grandmother and you loved Frank Sinatra. Um, <laughs> now, I understand grandma, but w- what about Frank Sinatra? What about him captured your imagination as a, as a young kid? When I was a little girl, I was mesmerized by his voice, absolutely mesmerized. Yeah. I thought I was going to be able to sing like that. <laughs> My audition songs were New York, New York and Bally High, believe it or not. Really? Yeah, wow. eight-year-old <laughs> singing Bloody Mary. That's great. Um, but I just, uh, I think it was the timing. I felt somehow nostalgic for a period I never lived through, I guess. Yeah, I, I mean, know. there's a glamour to him, which people sometimes attribute to you as well, this kind of old Hollywood glamour, this kind of mysterious star quality. You know, I, I wonder if some of that is rubbed, you know, you just are drawn to that or you aspire to that. I think in my mind somewhere I imagine that that golden age exists. And then there's few moments where you have that, you know, you either you'll be at a really glamorous dinner or in a, have someone's home with some really creative, wonderful people. And you think, oh, man, this is m- what it must have been like. Yeah. Um, but it's such a rare, rare thing now. It's a lost 
it's that hard, hard to grasp kind of those magical moments that we that so rarely happen in Hollywood anymore. Um, yeah. I think I felt nostalgic for that time because I loved, I mean, you know, most of the movies that I watched when I was a kid were of that golden age. And so mm. I think I just imagined that's how Hollywood would be. I mean, certainly times have changed. I don't think there was Us Weekly when, when Frank Sinatra was around. <laughs> um, Lucky for him. <laughs> lucky, maybe lucky for him. <laughs> Frank's not just just like us. But on the other hand, you have actually achieved a certain level. You've grown up and now maybe, you know, you just see that movies do have pixie dust and, and reality is a little bit less sparkly. Yes, that's true. I think that films, you know, it's interesting because on one hand, as an actor, you know, you want to get to the gritty, raw truth. But on the other hand, we want to keep the you know, mystery, um, you know, we want to keep that alive. It's all sprinkled with fairy dust. I guess it's just <laughs> some of it has a little bit more of a sharper particle, I would say, depending <laughs> on the true. project. <laughs> well, speaking of different projects, you, right now you're also in Captain America, The Winter Soldier, which couldn't be more different from Under the Skin. And I read that you fought for the play Natasha in Captain America mm-hmm. and in Iron Man 2. Did that role appeal to you because it is just a big, sparkly spectacle? Um, you know, I, I always wanted that, you know, what had eluded me um, was this franchise, this big blockbuster kind of, not not even necessarily a franchise, but something that was big and worked and... and yeah, uh, big phenomenon. You know, but wasn't... It's so hard to do that and know you're going to win. You never know you're going to win with something. And of course, oftentimes, it has to be the right fit. And for me... Knowing, going in to do Iron Man 2 and knowing that I was going to be able to work for John Favreau, it was the perfect fit for me because I looked around and I could see Robert Downey and Gwyneth Paltrow and Don Cheadle. And so there were all these actors that, you know, I'd either known or admired they respected, and from yeah. independent film world and everything. But here we were standing on a, you know, <laughs> on this $180 million set or whatever. Yeah. And, um, that felt right to me. And in Captain America, in this Karen the Winter Soldier, you have Robert Redford in the film, the king of independent cinema. I mean, if anything, that's that's a pass if you have any misgivings or anxiety about doing such a big film. Well, it brought me back. We, you know, we we partnered at the for the Horse Whisperer about. That's right. Oh gosh, what is it? Seventeen years ago or something? It's shocking. Yeah. And now I finally got to punch him in the face. <laughs> Never thought that would happen to the nicest man in Hollywood, but so there, I guess. <laughs> what an interesting life you lead. All right. Well, we have two standard questions we ask each of our guests on the show, and the first question is: What question? Are you tired of being asked in interviews? So many of them. <laughs> There's just so many. <laughs> I think probably anything like, what's it feel like to be the sexiest woman in the world? Mm. I mean, that is just, is that just a spirit killer right there? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's like, how are you supposed to answer that? I don't know. I've been trying to come up with that answer for the past 10 years. I said, well, it's nice for now, but eventually I'm going to be not the sexiest woman in the world. That That's Maybe that's more depressing. Well, I'm glad I didn't ask that question. <laughs> You're glad that you didn't? <laughs> yeah. And I would have gotten in trouble. See, the good thing about public radio audience, they would have, if I asked you a sex symbol question, they would have shut off the radio and turned on Mahler or something like that. On exactly. The that's what's so great about NPR. It's like your perfect companion. It's just great. So it's, th- it's a thrill for me to do the show, really. Well, thank you. See, I have no trouble taking um, praise, by the way. So you can ask me any questions about being a sex symbol, <laughs> and I'll take it in stride. Um, we have another question, which is, uh, tell us something we don't know. And this can be either a, a personal fact you haven't shared in interviews, or it could just be kind of an interesting little piece of trivia. Hmm. 
something you don't know about me, I guess, would be that my I want to give you my biggest celebrity crush. Oh, okay. Would probably be Trent Reznor. Huh. <laughs> the guy behind the band Nine Inch Nails, which made dark kind of industrial music. That would be my like faint meet him and faint, I think. Um, and, and why Trent? Something from from Frank Sinatra and Judy Garland to Nine Inch yes. Nails. I think that there's a there's definitely a through line with Frank Sinatra, Judy Garland, and Nine Inch Nails. Um, and I'm gonna leave it up to your listeners to find it because I <laughs> I know it's there. Well, my mind immediately goes to that Nine Inch Nails song, Head Like a Hole, which has that quote: uh, "I'd rather die than give you control." Maybe controls the link, you know, Frank Sinatra controlling and although Judy Garland I, I, I don't know how in control she was I would see I was gonna go much more with like a sort of a fragility and this kind of like broken sadness uh, maybe what I would see as a sort of a reluctant star or something like that performing despite some anxiety or insecurity there's something about the bleeding soul that comes through maybe all of those vocalists you know sort of this reluctance to do it and then you do because you have to because it's what you're good at and what feels good but it hurts at the same time wow i don't know maybe all great performers are like that anyway do you but, identify um, with that i mean do you, do you do you seem pretty happy right now i don't know I, acting can be extremely painful of course because it brings you to places that you know that people usually ignore but it's part of it's the best thing it's a very it's a rewarding feeling it's very liberating you're tapping into like the real stuff of being a human and and you're that's you know, the stuff that's the juicy stuff that's the good yeah. stuff well, Scarlett, thank you so much for chatting with us. Thank you so much. This has been just such a delightful dinner date. Scarlett Johansson, there's two ways to see her right now in the big action pick Captain America, The Winter Soldier, or the darker, more cerebral sci-fi flick, Under the Skin. That's right. And Trent Reznor, if you're listening out there, you can make a donation directly at our website dinnerpartydownload.org Bali may call you any night any day And now the main course where we talk about our favorite part of a party the food So Brendan LA is one of the best towns in America of course to find various ethnic cuisines you got Mexican Japanese Polish, we got mm-hmm. Thai all over the place. There's Mongolian. There's even American up. cuisine somewhere. <laughs> yep, you got to dig for it, but it's out there. But one thing the city is without is a place serving the food of Uzbekistan. Ah, there's an opportunity. That's right, but that is about to change. Uh, in a month or so, the Uzbek joint Samarkand Cafe will open downtown. For a preview and to learn about the cuisine, I spoke to the cafe's owners, Feruza Musaiva, who is Uzbek, and her husband, Dan Levy, who is French. When I met him at their home, I first asked, on behalf of the geographically challenged, where Uzbekistan is. It's in Central Asia, south part of Central Asia. We border with Afghanistan. Uh, I say Afghanistan because I think if I name other countries, they are also less known, like Kyrgyzstan, Kazakhstan. Yeah, that doesn't help us place it in the world. (laughs) So Afghanistan is the most famous country that we border with. It's the most populated country in Central Asia. And you describe the cuisine of this area as being kind of the first fusion foods. Tell me what cuisines are incorporated into Uzbek cooking. We could say that the famous uh, Silk Road went through Uzbekistan from China to Istanbul. So all the culture from China went uh, one point to Uzbekistan, the Persian they went to Uzbekistan. So, so that at the end of the day, Uzbekistan is like a fusion between Middle East, Persian, and Chinese food. 
So you have to a lot of a Chinese dish, like a dumpling, become manti. The Chinese dumpling becomes, what is it called? Manti? Uh, manti. Manti. Tell me the difference between, say, a Chinese dumpling and an Uzbek dumpling. Then. I guess it's different herbs and the meat. We, of course, don't use pork. Mainly beef. And also we have pumpkin uh, manti, which is great, which is light, but at the same time, you know, delicious. <laughs> so you said Persian. What is the Persian influence? The pilaf. Pilaf and samsa maybe too. The samsa is like a samosa for an Indian. Like a samosa. Yeah, samosa Indian. And the person went to uh, Indian, so they leave some food there. So the samosa and the samsa has the same origin. So you're saying the Indian samosa and the Uzbek samsa both originate from the same Persian food, you're saying? Maybe, maybe, yeah. And the other thing you mentioned was uh, pilaf, which is called plov, is that right? Plov is it the Russian way. Palo is the Uzbek way. And what is this? My understanding is that this is kind of the essential dish of Uzbek cooking. Yes, that's the most famous. In the same way that you have pasta at every meal in Italy, do you have palo at every meal? At every wedding. And I will probably be right if I say a good Uzbek family cooks pilaf once a week. But it's a it's like the essential wedding dish, basically. That's like the wedding chicken of Uzbekistan. Oh, this is yes, yes, yes. Big events they don't go without pilaf. Is the main course. Let's say the queen, the king. Sorry, sorry, fellow, <laughs> the king <laughs> of main courses of Uzbek dishes. Queens and kings are equally powerful at different <laughs> places in the world. It's fine. Um, but you're going to make some palau, is that right? Uh, yes, we already started cooking. So yes, soon we're going to serve it. All right, let's go take a look. So we're standing by the stove. The pilau is cooking in what looks like kind of a giant deep wok with no handle. And it's been cooking for quite a while. How long does this take to make? It depends because if it's for a lot of people, it will take you longer time to cut because the main thing to cut is the carrots. It's time consuming to cut the carrots. Oh, I know. Uh, yes. And I hate carrots. cutting carrots. <laughs> but also, the, it's very important. I mean, ideally, it's supposed to be yellow carrot. I didn't even know there were yellow carrots. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's so nice and so tasty. I mean, unfortunately, here we don't have yellow carrots. Even if we have, they're quite expensive. Orange carrot is also not bad, but it makes it sweeter. White, yellow carrots are less sweet? Yes, they are less sweet. I think more juicy. But also carrot is the soul of pilaf. Really? Yes. For Uzbek pilaf. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not claiming myself to be an expert in any other pilaf. So, <laughs> But, you know, every family makes their own pilaf, like their own way, because we have, I think it is 100 types of pilafs in Uzbekistan. A hundred kinds? Yes. I guess that's not crazy to think. I mean, it's no. rice with stuff in it, and that's, you can do a lot with that. But still, that's a lot. Yes, different meat. But my job, mainly it is beef and lamb. So it's still cooking on very, very low heat. How much longer? Yes. We are done, actually. I have to turn it off. Oh, it looks lovely. Rice, chickpeas in there. I see the carrots. I don't see the meat in there right now. Is that because we cook it with, by layers. Okay, so you've got meat on the bottom layer, which I can't see yet. Yes. You are now ladling the rice into a, a larger pot, exposing the layers of carrot and meat at the bottom. Oh, man. There's a lot of, you know, drippings at the bottom of the pan. Oh, like, ideally, I'm supposed to serve all this. Like, all of the drippings? Oil and fat and all that, you know? But you're, but you're not going to? If you are adventurous enough, I can. You just mix it up with the rice? Yes. Oh, yeah, that's fine. I love greasy rice. Are you kidding me? <laughs> now you've transferred all the different layers over into another bigger pot, and you're going to mix all that up, I guess. Yeah. 
there's a ton of this too. You're you're going to get some biceps mixing that up. Yeah, that, that's true. All right, and now I'm going to be very barbaric and just take a spoonful without even transferring the food onto my own plate. This is how it's eaten in Uzbekistan. Just everybody eats off the main serving plate? From, from one plate, even at home, we did that. And here we go. That is delicious. It's really soulful. I told you. Carrot. The soul of pilaf. They are very soulful carrots. The the meat is just tender as can be. Actually, Dan, I have to ask you, you are French, sir. Yeah, I'm French. This is a tough question for you. As a Frenchman, yes. which cuisine do you prefer? Oh, my God. You're a Frenchman starting... An Uzbek restaurant. It's difficult, you know? Especially talk, <laughs> asking that question in front of me. Come on. <laughs> we are married. We have two children. Don't do that to him. <laughs> and Brendan, Feruza, and Dan also told me about the Uzbek dish, Hanim. Okay. Which is Italian-style pasta dough spread with Middle Eastern fillings, rolled in steamed Asian style, and topped with a kind of Mediterranean yogurt sauce. Wow. Thing. It's like the Olympics on a plate. <laughs> the whole right. village. <laughs> All right, we're going to take a break. Coming up, Billy on the Streets, Billy Eichner tells you how to behave, sort of, yeah. when the Dinner Party download continues. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, the show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. I am Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. In a few minutes, we'll speak with filmmaker Lance Bangs and with Britt Walford, one of the founding members of seminal indie rock band Slint. Man, it's alarming when bands from your youth start being considered seminal. Yeah, it is jarring. <laughs> But first, it's time for our weekly etiquette lesson. Yes, each week you send in your questions about how to behave, and here to answer them this week is Billy Eichner. He hosts the Fuse TV show Funnier Dies, Billy on the Street. It's a comedy game show where Billy, who is more than a little obsessed with pop culture, hits the streets of New York and quizzes pedestrians on trivia. But Jeopardy! this is not, and Alex Trebek he is not. Here's a clip in which he and his guest Amy Poehler offered a dollar to anyone who could sing a Christmas carol with them correctly. They better sing the right lyrics. Are you ready, Amy? Yeah, let's do it. Let's go. Here we go. Sure, do you want to sing Christmas carols with me and Amy Poehler Hi. for a dollar? For a dollar? Yeah. Yes. Here, here we go. Deck the halls with boughs of holly. La, 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 la. Yes. 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 Tis the season to be jolly. La, 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 la. Dawn, we now are. Gay apparel! Let's go, Amy! He let's go! No, Amy, let's go! He didn't know! He didn't know! He didn't know! So, yeah. that's the basic idea. You run around like a maniac accosting people. That is accurate. Well done. <laughs> Where did this idea come from? Oh, man. I was making these videos as part of my live stand-up shows in New York years ago. Um, where I would take on this persona that was really uh, irrationally passionate about celebrity and his <laughs> opinions about celebrity. The original idea in my head was, it's one thing to stand on stage and rant and rave about pop culture, and a lot of people do that, a lot of comedians do that now, but what if you take it outside and shove it in a real person's <laughs> face as if it's yeah. something that everyone should be thinking about, even though this <laughs> yeah. person's just yes. going about their day, they're going to pick up their kids, they're on their way to work, you know, and it's in, it's in New York, obviously, so there's a certain pace on the street. New Yorkers don't give a crap about anything <laughs> but what they have to do that day, and everyone has really busy lives, and in the middle of it, I stop you and ask you did jennifer hudson peak too soon <laughs> because to me that's very important well speaking of confronting people on the street overall have you been yes. pleasantly surprised 
or disappointed in how people respond to you? Always surprised. It, it has been a testament to not judging a book by its cover, honestly. It's a cliche, but it's so true. I really do pick people at random. I don't know who I'm going to talk to. And the reason I do that is because I have found when you sort of spot someone you know, coming my way and I think to myself, oh, that person looks funny or wacky, mm. yeah. 99% of the time they've got nothing. <laughs> And they're just boring, <laughs> and this sort of wacky look is, is yeah. probably there because they have nothing actually interesting going yeah, on. Yeah, that's all the energy they have went into the clothes. Went into their weird hat or their strange <laughs> long beard, you know? And so, and then you see some older lady on the street, and you'd think, oh, well, this person's never going to know about Katy Perry or whatever I'm asking about. And then sure yeah. enough, they saw her on The View, or they saw her <laughs> on The Today Show, and they have a lot of opinions. And more importantly for me, the time to stand there and talk to me about <laughs> That's it. That's true. <laughs> yeah. What I have found in New York is that there are a lot of people walking around waiting for someone to talk to them. Do you have an example of maybe the most surprised you ever were with somebody? Yeah, there was a man, the first season of the show, this a semi-toothless I don't know if he was homeless, but he certainly wasn't overly employed, I would say. <laughs> okay. And yes. I asked him if he liked who who did you who do you like better, Meryl Streep or Glenn Close? <laughs> and I have this ongoing Perfect. Meryl Streep obsession on my show, and he was so like vehemently supportive of Glenn Close. <laughs> and we get into a huge <laughs> argument about it, wow. and he's just yelling Glenn Close it's Glenn Close, dude. It's Glenn Close, dude. <laughs> you you think there's no way it isn't scripted, but I swear you could not write it. You know. All right, Billy. We have a question. Will you will you answer our listeners' etiquette question? I will answer anything for a dollar. Yes, for yeah, for free. But you have to donate the dollar back to public radio. Sure. Okay. You know what? Okay. You guys are doing fine. Th- well, <laughs> oh wait, what? Don't judge a book by its cover, Billy. It's a nice studio, but we're actually. I don't. Oh, come on, Fuse TV has nice studios. No, don't get me started. <laughs> I shoot outside for a reason all right here's this is a question from chris in north carolina hi chris and chris writes my friend borrows money from me often not a lot at once just pocket change when he doesn't have cash but it's a fairly one-way street and he doesn't exactly jump on repaying me any fun ideas about how to call him out or settle the balance Hmm. yeah you tell you tell him you owe me a lot of money that's what you tell him i mean no no i would say look i don't have a ton of money myself i can't keep lending you money you have to be honest you know if you don't give me the money back i can't continue lending it exactly you You never pay me back it's a little change here and there it all adds up you know i need my money go get a job babysit but 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 chris any fun ideas i gave you a fun idea (laughs) i said look him dead in the eye and say stop taking all my money it's pretty fun. That's a that roller coaster fun. ride, socially speaking. I've made a you career out of it. I know. Forget, you know, we have the Post, Emily Post, great-grandchildren come by giving certain <laughs> etiquette advice. I like your direct approach to etiquette. I think we're going to get along. Yeah, yeah. Yes. I can almost predict the rest of your answers, though. Exactly. Well, let's see. Let's, let's see. see. Let's see. Don't so judge Chris- a book by its <laughs> cover. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, I'll stop cursing. All right. So this next question comes from Scott in L.A. Scott writes, I'm a video editor. Knowing oh, video formats... <laughs> Oh, oh, in L.A.? Can you believe it? What a nice change of pace. Yeah. Keep going. Knowing video formats and sizes is what I'm paid to do. Great. Sometimes when I go to my friends' homes, I notice their TVs aren't set up correctly. Oh, you're a lot of fun. (laughs) Yep. 
<laughs> the image is scaled oddly, or they're watching SD channels when I know an HD version is available. Oh, what, a, what a laid back dude. <laughs> okay, keep what going. A... Scott. Scott's his name. <laughs> yeah. We're shocked his name is Scott, by the way. <laughs> keep going. What is the proper etiquette for offering to fix their setup, or at least suggesting they're doing it wrong? I don't want to be obnoxious and overreach. See, he knows on some level that it's a little obnoxious. The proper etiquette is... Get a life is the proper <laughs> etiquette. I'm so sick of people complaining, oh, it's not an HD. Who are you? There are homeless people outside, homeless people who love Glenn Close, and they don't have HD or SD. They don't have anything. They barely have a little... Uh, uh, we, my day, we had, I had a portable compact disc player. That was the only form of entertainment I had. So yeah. stop being so judgmental about people's but, but isn't entertainment. But wouldn't Meryl Streep look better on HD, Billy? She always looks great. She hasn't aged a day since Kramer versus Kramer. Just ask the people of New York. Scott. Going over to, if Scott came to my house and said, Oh, can, you, can, you, can we watch a show in HD? No. No, you but, can't. But isn't it a simple way to make someone's life better? Look, with a touch of a button, I can make this look more pleasing to the eye. Get out of here. <laughs> yeah, come on. Get out. Like, come over to my house. By the way, you're going to go over to someone's house and sit there and watch TV? Who are you, my <laughs> Uncle Lester? Scott, I just want you to know I would defend you more, but I'm a little afraid to do so How right boring. Now. Play a board game. Talk for five minutes. You're on your damn phone all day long, and then you're going to, oh, yeah, let's just throw all caution to the wind and watch some television. And he's a video editor, so he's already doing that at work. Like, yeah, get yeah. some exercise. Well, I'm sure Scott's a real looker, by the way. <laughs> I oh, word. All right. That was that was the polite way to deal with things. There you go, Scott. Yeah, absolutely. That's <laughs> good. This is, you're actually giving me a good idea because there, I've been getting a lot of um, some interest in people wanting me to write a book, seriously. Mm. And and I, I'm always sort of, I don't know, you know, I don't know everyone. Every stupid comedian writes a book. Yeah. But you're giving me a good idea. I'll write an etiquette book. Oh, great. Well, give us I a cut. That's okay. good. Yeah, so well, we'll yeah, get really? 15 to 39% of that. Yeah, I know. You guys always want every cent you can get here. <laughs> We've got it on Somehow tape. Terry Gross doesn't need my nickels and dimes. You know what I mean? <laughs> This is something from Trying to Be Gentle. It comes via our website. They don't even want to tell us where they're from, Trying okay. to Be Gentle. What do I say, this person asks, when someone asks me for my phone number and I'm not interested in giving it to them? Um, I'll, I'll answer that one honestly okay. since I've been giving your, your viewers a hard time so right. far. I think you, in that case, you know what I say actually? I say, you know what? It, um, let me just give you my email because it's quicker. I'm on email all oh, day that's long, good. and uh, mm -hmm. honestly, you'll get a quicker response out of me via email. <laughs> I.e., never. So, so you lie to them, is what you're saying? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Hello, welcome to show business. <laughs> I like you. Had a, I like how you had a better tone of voice, but you're still your core answer yes. was lie to them. Yeah. Well, I'll be honest. I miss Scott. <laughs> <laughs> I do. Billy Eichner, thank you so much for telling our audience how to behave. Thank you. It was fun. Thanks for having me. Billy Eichner, host of the comedy quiz show Funnier Dies, Billy on the Street. You can find it on the Fuse channel Wednesday nights or, if you're lucky, on the streets of New York. That's right. It's chock full of examples of rude behavior, which will perhaps inspire you to send an etiquette question our way, right? Just head to dinnerpartydownload.org and click contact. Or you can call our emergency etiquette hotline, a.k.a. the phone at my cubicle. Yes. The number is 213-621-3460. In 1991, a relatively unknown band called Slint from Louisville, Kentucky, put out their second album, Spiderland, and almost immediately broke up. 
It contained just six songs, and if I had to guess, I'd say most folks listening to this show still haven't heard that album, but those who did had their minds blown, and it is now considered an underground classic. It's influenced countless bands. It's listed by Spin Magazine as one of the greatest records of the 90s, and when it was reissued this week, Pitchfork rated it a perfect 10. A documentary about Slint is making its way into theaters now. It's called Breadcrumb Trail, and joining me first is the director, Lance Bangs. Hello. Hello. And also one of the main creative forces in Slint, drummer Britt Walford. Hello to you, sir. Hello. Lance, let me start with you. As you say at the beginning of the movie, you've been making this film basically for decades. Yeah. For those who haven't seen it, tell us what drew you to your subject. I was in Athens, Georgia in the early 1990s. I was still a teenager. I was doing spoken word uh, with a band there called Bliss, and... We happened to go on tour and went to a really great all-ages club called Squash Pile. We walked in this really transfixing record with this amazing atmosphere to it was playing through the PA and was instantly curious about it and wanted to know all about, you know, what was this music and where did it come from and why did it sound so distinct? It, it sounded like kind of short stories being spoken yeah. in a narrative form that were really interesting and cinematic over really striking and, and complicated and interesting music um, and found out right away that the band had already broken up you know, I don't think they put their own names on the record. The band name doesn't appear on the front of the record. It was this very cryptic object with a really remarkable photograph on the cover that drew your attention and gave you a sense of, you know, what are these four figures floating in a quarry yeah. up to and what are they thinking? And It's basically just four, the four heads of the band members floating in, in a lake in a quarry, basically. Yeah, and was just instantly curious and, and started driving up from Athens, Georgia towards Louisville and kind of, you know, taking Super 8 movie cameras and video cameras and documenting as much as I could find and kind of uh, chasing stories about these guys. So basically you go into it knowing nothing about the band. There is no information on the album. What did you expect to find when you caught up with them? Like, were they going to, you know, tell you the secret of life? Yeah, I was hoping, you know, honestly, I was hoping to find out like, oh, these two guys have a new band and they're going to play and you can go see them at this house party or these guys are in the studio and if you want to go check out the sessions, like feel free to go drop by. But instead, I was talking to younger people that were sort of influenced by them who had all these kind of Sasquatch type stories about them that sounded like tall tales that like they had checked into hospitals during the recording or they were in seclusion or they were hiding out in a cabin in the woods trying to write new songs and yeah. all these things that seemed kind of larger than life and yet may be believable based on how distinguished and interesting the music was. Well, let me ask you, why was there no information on the album? I mean, were you being willfully oblique or did you just not want people to bug you? Um, I don't, I don't, we didn't not want people to bug us there there was an aspect of like we didn't really think like marketing really made any sense to us but um i think it was just aesthetic choices really and it does as lance says get across the the kind of stark cinematic quality of the music let's actually hear some of it do you want to pick uh, a song off the album which one do you think kind of represents the record uh, to you um well gosh N uh, nosferatu man nosferatu man all right let's listen to it started 
as a teenager in a punk band called Squirrel Bait. Slint's music is in many ways the opposite. It's very measured, it's very precise, the songs are long. You play especially with dynamics, very soft to suddenly very loud. Do you recall a moment where you headed down the path towards that sound and kind of left punk behind? It seems like we liked a lot of different kind of stuff, but you know, maybe the Minutemen were maybe an influence and they were just uh, one of a lot of unique bands like opened your head to try new kinds of things to do anything yeah you must hear this from a lot of people Spiderland I mean you heard it from Lance it's one of these albums that appears and if you're a certain kind of person you feel like you've been waiting for that sound forever and have no idea where it came from does hearing that from people surprise you like how aware were you at the time that you were doing something totally different man that does really surprise me um the album it it does sound like kind of weird to me now you know like i've heard it a few times over the years and just been like wow <laughs> that's weird in the movie your your parents are showing off the the piles of mail that started coming in after that album came out i'm sure you had people like lance you know trying to track you down do you remember maybe a, a run-in with a fan that particularly stands out all of the letters were really pretty surprising they're from all different parts of the world and a lot of them would be from like pretty young people and that was really cool. Does one stand out? The PJ Harvey one was pretty cool. What? PJ Harvey, of course, one of the great female rockers of the 90s. I mean, she wrote because we had on the back of the record interested female vocalists, right? And so she wrote. You could have maybe had PJ Harvey as your vocalist. There are a lot of bands that would have gotten back together just to do that. Yeah. <laughs> it's not too late. It's not too late, Britt. Yeah. <laughs> Lance, let me let me yeah. actually close it out with you. What I mean, you got to meet these guys and hang out with them for decades. What most surprised you about it? That they were, you know, such fascinating, interesting guys to me. The uh, the work that they did in other combinations and on their own over the years afterwards. There's all kinds of great music to discover from the project they did in subsequent years, and yet it always felt like they were making great work and not seeking attention in traditional ways, not self-promoting, not, you know, putting a sticker on something saying former members of Slint, you know, often working under fake names or no names or no information on even those subsequent releases. It genuinely feels like those guys were not seeking approval or, you know, regard from the outside world. It felt like they just loved the time that they spent with each other crafting and refining and writing those songs regardless of whether anyone else was into it or not. Filmmaker Lance Bangs and drummer Britt Walford of Slint, the only band that could make 30 seconds of a single repeated note absolutely gripping. You're listening to that happen right now. So I take it you're a fan? I... <laughs> Part of my hyperbole. That's I, right. Um, I'm a fan too, but even non-fans will enjoy the Slint documentary. It's yep. called Breadcrumb Trail. You'll find it in theaters or in the new Spiderland box set. The band is back together and on tour starting in May. And that concludes this encore episode of the Dinner Party Download, people. Next week, we'll be back with a special summertime show designed to be listened to outdoors under the stars. Until then, you can find us in cyberspace on Twitter, Facebook, Tumblr, and Instagram, where our handle is DinnerPartyDNLD. Jackson Musker is associate producer of the Dinner Party Download. Brittany Martin's our digital assistant. Our intern is Esther Mania. Engineering this week from new guy Daniel Ramirez, mm. who survived the hazing with flying colors. Well done. Hooray. Special thanks this week to Tommy Andres. Bon appetit. <laughs>